Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, a non-12-step program for people who want to ameliorate addiction and addiction-related issues in their lives. By the way, when I say addiction, I don't mean only drug and alcohol addiction, but also addiction to love, sex, gambling, pornography, technology, and a whole range of other experiences. To learn more about the program, or to check out free resources like articles, videos, blogs, and podcast episodes related to solving addiction-related problems, visit our website at lifeprocessprogram.com or follow us on social media by using any of the links in the show notes. You're listening to a segment called MMA, Monday Morning Ammunition. Some of our shows are long-form interviews. Monday Morning Ammunition episodes are usually short educational segments that you might listen to during your morning routine or your Monday morning commute. Today you'll hear part five of an eight-part discussion that I recorded with Dr. Stanton Peel, the creator of the Life Process Program. You may wonder, why are there eight segments? And that's because our program consists of eight modules, each of which encourage participants to think critically about that respective dimension of their lives and what they'd like to accomplish. So today we'll discuss module five, which is resources and skills. Enjoy your Monday morning ammunition. We'll move on to module five, which is titled Resources, subtitled Identifying Strengths and Weaknesses, Developing Skills to Fill the Gaps. Um, Stanton, we write in this module exercise reading that overcoming addiction requires you to evaluate your strengths and weaknesses, and then to address your weaknesses effectively, involving two related sets of activities. One is assessing one's resources, and the other is developing skills. If I could just hone in on resources, what do resources have to do with addiction, overcoming addiction? How does one adequately assess what the resources are and aren't? And then what's our basis for asking them to do so in the first place? Well, there's a fundamental assumption in life process program, which is something I know you do in working with children. It's strength-based. And I go into the whole foray and of course one thing we always have in mind is that we're somewhat opposed to the mainstream trauma based which leads off with people describing the worst things about themselves and the worst things about their lives and of course the 12 steps are built around identifying all of your flaws and problems i describe a case of a man um i knew in oakland um who came to a homeless shelter and there were some kids there and he started showing them how to play basketball and it struck the uh, director, the athletic director at the Y. He had no idea that this man had those skills. And when he talked to him afterwards, he found out that he had gotten a scholarship that he wasn't able to take to college to play basketball out of Oakland. And he got around to where he recruited the man to start, directing a camp for kids around basketball. And when I talked to the man, he said, you know, I've been in and out of treatment and rehab 12 times. And every time I go in, we review all of the signs that I'm an alcoholic. But I didn't need to review any of that because I was walking around downtown Oakland with a bottle and a brown paper bag to determine I was an alcoholic. That wasn't hard to do. 
this is the first time that anybody had talked to me about any of the strengths I had, any of the successes I had in life. And that very much tied into my whole approach and uh, I think your whole approach and the whole life process program approach, which I think I would put this way. People in general do better when they're feeling strong about and positive about themselves. You know, switching to your arena, nobody in the world tries to educate a child by loading them down with all of their weaknesses and problems. Nobody says, well, I, no, no, we're going to try and teach you to read, but God, you have bad spatial recognition and you really seem slow. And I don't really think that you've done anything positive in the past that'll allow us to proceed here. And often I think in terms of children, what makes no sense with children is something that we regularly do in addiction. I mean, we start out by saying in the 12 steps, how you're powerless. And then people, when they give those little talks, they describe all the bad things in their lives. And so looking at your resources is asking the question, how do we build a platform for change? Uh, that requires both the spirit to change, feeling good about yourself on the one hand, and then it also involves looking at what assets you have in your life. What positives do you have that can help you change? Because we know in general, people do better in change when, for example, they have some solid pluses in their life, a family, a spouse, children, when they have work, when they have certain kinds of skills, um, all of these things can be multiplied in dealing with life. And so we do an inventory of all the good things about you, both as a way of rekindling your positive thoughts about yourself, but also specifically in order to think about what it is you're bringing to the table. What kinds of gifts do you have? What can you build your life around? Are you good with electronics? Do you have computer skills? Are you good at talking to people? Um, are you entrepreneurial? Are you cool in the crunch? And really, my fundamental belief is that everybody has positives. I know you feel that way about children. I know children come to you, and generally, they don't arrive at your doorstep or your office unless they're facing a problem. But you don't look at them and say, oh, my God, they're this problem. You look at them and you think, well, what abilities have they, do they have and what abilities do, have they already demonstrated? In outgrowing addiction, you talk about one child, you talk about a child who is very good visually in drawing, or you talk about a child who's very good on social media. And how do you draw that person, who in your case tends to be a teen, into the success line at school? by building on their strongest asset mm -hmm. and generalizing that to where they're weak. Have they been failing to do their assignments? Do they not meld with the group? How can you take their positives and expand them? And that's what we do in Life Process Program. We take the skills they have and we build from that to improve as many aspects of their lives as we can. And we do that both as a way of giving them the positive assumption that they are going to see, which is critical. 
because in general, people enter treatment and therapy and addiction coaching at a point when they're perhaps thinking some bad thoughts about themselves. And generally, that's just not the very best way to go. We know from so many areas of psychology, but certainly from Seligman's positive psychology, that anticipating success and looking forward in a positive manner is is probably the single greatest predictor of success or of change. So among the one exercise we do is we do a continuing um, self-description, a kind of a narrative about your life. And after we ask people to give, you know, an accurate picture of their life, where possibly some people tend to focus on negatives, we then give them the instruction, well, suppose you're trying to get a job, to put your life in the best light possible, to look at, to emphasize your successes, perhaps even build them up more than you're used to doing. And people, when they do that exercise, they often come away from it and say, you know, I get a lot more like the man who became a, a kid basketball coach. I've had a lot more positives and successes in my life than I ever really thought about or focused on. And a whole subset of past successes and skills is looking at addictions they've quit in the past. For example, I talked. I have a case in there about a man who had gotten into a destructive relationship with a woman. And in fact, his daughter was now a young adult, was very concerned about it. And in the course of talking with him, I learned that he had quit smoking. And when I asked him how that happened, he said he came home once and his daughter was in grade school. And she said, Dad, don't you love me? Why are you killing yourself? And so... On the one hand, you're saying to a person, you know, you are, I'm here to help you quit an addiction or I'm trying to be useful that way, but you are an expert in your own life in terms of what it takes to overcome an addiction. You've done it already. What we're trying to do, what I'm trying to help you with is something that you've already succeeded in if they say quit smoking in the past. And in particular, in this case, the linkage was so direct because he felt bad about his behavior, which was compulsive and destructive. And in the case of quitting smoking, it was his daughter that he was aiming to overcome the addiction for. And that was exactly true now when he was getting into his later 50s and his daughter was grown up, in this case around a relationship that had a lot of negatives in it she disliked and that he was regretting. So respecting people both in terms of their general abilities and in what they bring to the process, the life process program process, that they have the strength to change, giving them the respect of asking them, uh, you know, what is it you can do well you're a person who can really guide this process. I have faith in you to be able to utilize your own agency to make these changes. And once again, I, you know, I go back to your personal experiences, Zach. That, that's what you want to do with a child. Do you want a child to feel their own potential, their own strength, uh, recognize their own strengths, and to build 
both from the feelings that gives them and from the actual specific assets and skills that they have in life to broaden those to make them more successful in, in dealing with the world. Just to summarize, when we're talking about resources, what we're saying as a program, as clinicians, when I work with children, when I work with families or individuals, is that the information people need to move forward and become better is there and their skills are there. You might relate yourself to other people, but maybe more important to relate yourself to yourself. People have some skills that are better than other of their skills. And a person might ask while we're trying to do the skills inventory, well, what's my justification for focusing on my skills when even my best skills have gotten me here? And you talked about resources as a platform, a way of stepping up and sort of seeing the answer why. And you gave a good example of you kind of need to feel like the things you bring to the table matter in some larger way than just your own self-interests. And if you can figure out how to manifest your skills in a way that help not just you, but apply to the world abroad, then you can start feeling like you're moving forward. And it gives you a reason to think about improving other areas of ability, because then you know, it's like, I, well, now I'm focused. I really want to do this thing. I really want to help this person. I really want to do well at this job. Well, as a coach, we're being reactive. We're taking in information. We're asking questions. Um, I know from your work, when you look at a child, you get information about them. Right. And you learn things about them that are surprising and that you admire and you're impressed by. I mean, I know in one case, it was one kid who had great artistic skills and was able to write, draw caricatures. I know in another case you dealt with, it was a kid who had computer skills that could be accessed for the class. And the coach's job is to be creative. This is what you were just describing. In seeing how those skills are both meaningful and can be broadened in the focus, like kind of a laser-like, on the areas where they're not doing well. I mean, I know in one case with your, uh, with the artist kid, he wasn't doing his assignments. He wasn't applying himself to doing current event assignments. And when you tied in him drawing political type cartoons, that just worked excellently. And the other kid who was also feeling alienated was able to become a leader in the classroom around generalizing and teaching people computer skills that he already had. It's a matter of showing people that what they possess is something that can be tuned into uh, the task in front of us, which is to fight the addiction, you know, or whatever their other specific problem is. I used to get this line from people a lot when I was growing up. And they said to me, I wish you saw yourself the way that I saw you. And um, it sounded so, uh, what's the word, contrived all the time. But there's something to that. And that's, we, you and I wrote a book together, Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense instead of Disease Therapy. And I think that's some of the common sense we're talking about. That I wish that you saw yourself the way I saw you is sort of the, that's what incites this process that we're talking about, being able to help people extract those skills and resources enough that they can see what they are in front of them and see why they're important. I want to bring in, just tie in, when you and I wrote a book together, at first you realized I had some good ideas. So you asked, do you want to write with me? And we started writing. 
and you could have easily said this is junk because at that time I, I did have a lot of ideas and how they could manifest. I wasn't quite sure maybe talking them through and, and jabbing with people. But when it comes to writing, that's a very different skill. So I would send you writing samples and you would bless your heart, would go through them and take a long time to edit them. And, you know, you'd send them back and we never really went anywhere with them. And I can see now looking back as because it weren't really marketable, but you didn't say that to me and you didn't say, well, you're a poor writer. You just refocused from our writing projects to interesting ideas that I may have had. And you kept pinging me about how I could help you in your work and, and how you might be able to help me. And, and we kept doing well, it until again, I think it's very close to the kind of work you do with children. Right. You try to have a bias towards the positive. That's just a belief we have. I mean, pointing out people's problems and traumas and having them focus on the negative, it, it just isn't psychologically grounded in making people improve. My, I know when you work with kids and when I work with anybody, I praise them. I look for the positives in what they're doing, and there always are positives. Obviously, there's some ways if they're consulting with you for help, or they've been told that it's a kid that they have to do that. That has to be, you know, they're not doing enough positive, but that they should never get the message that they're incapable or <clears throat> that they're not bringing something to the table. The opposite is true, which I, I know you have almost a ratio of positive things that you put in a report. You want to be biased in a positive direction. And, and that's the opposite of the 12 steps and of trauma therapy, which is biased in a negative direction. That, that's just not the way that we go. And our whole process is geared towards giving people responsibility and them feeling that they can own that responsibility and, and run with it. Biased is an interesting word. It's true. That's what it is. It's an optimism bias. But at the other hand, if you could put it more practically, it's something like when you look at a person's achievements, their skills, what they bring to the table, and you have to report back either to them or a parent or somebody else. I mean, as you just mentioned, why would you say, look, they'll never get there? There, this is just a failing person. Why try? It's just, how would that be important? How would that help facilitate a meaningful path forward? Instead, you say you, you remain honest. You don't lie. You don't fabricate or become fanciful, but you can say, look, it's possible not just for everyone to move forward positively, but here are the reasons why it's possible for you. Well, if I, if I have a, a skill, everybody has a mix, different mix in what they bring to the clinical table, the coaching table. If I have something I think that I do well, it's in being impressed by what people can do and have done. Yeah. I mean, I, I become genuinely enthusiastic in recognizing the successes they've had. I just like to pick up on people's strength and skills. Oh, you can do that. That's amazing. Um, oh, you did that. That's fabulous. And um, I think that's the, the kind of bias to take. Now, I, I know we're switching from, um, from the assets that people have to what lies next on our agenda is developing people's skills. At the same time that we want to be positive, I mean, people come with some deficiencies, mm. some difficulties. That's why they're there to see you. And there's some clearly identifiable skill areas 
that we encounter quite often and that we do skills development. Skills training is critical in your work. Skills training is critical in addiction work. And so there are skills that people sometimes lack that we're pretty focused on. And sometimes these skills are very noticeable in some people. And on the other hand, there's some skills that in general people can improve upon. I would say that most people you encounter aren't very good at. So, so one skill that a person may not be dealing well with other human beings, they may lack good communication skills. Um, they may find that they don't um, get the welcome that they like from other people. I, you know, obviously that's a pretty complicated mixture, but we talk in straightforward ways about how people can learn to talk with other human beings. Um, and obviously one of those ways is to recognize the other human being, to be aware of them as a person, and to be able to get outside of themselves, particularly to ask people questions. And so we sort of have an exercise, what you and I and the Life Process Program practices is something called motivational interviewing. And hopefully what we're demonstrating in coaching is an ability to draw people out and to get them to explore themselves uh, by asking them questions. And as we learn about them, we hopefully expose areas in their own thinking that maybe they hadn't been completely aware of. Mm. So we're doing a community life process program and motivational interviewing is a form of communication with people based on asking questions. And so in a almost semi humorous way, we say, well, while you're here, we're going to train you to become a therapist. And so we work with people to learn that the first thing they do with another person, rather than telling them something, is asking them something. And in the case of helping people, the, the quickest track to trap that people fall into is when somebody says, oh, I'm having trouble with A or B, I'm doing badly at work, or I'm not dealing well with my spouse or my parents or my child, is to say, oh, here's what you should do. And most people understand that to be what therapy consists of, but it's not. What therapy consists of is learning to ask people questions so that they can make connections on their own. That's the process that we're engaged in in the Life Process Program. And it's often very helpful to people to get them to explore that realm of communication in dealing with other people. And so we have them, you know, when we had a, a residential rehab, I would have a three-person triad and one person would come with a problem, everybody had a problem, and the coach or the counselor or the motivational interviewer would say, uh, help them, but they were only allowed to ask questions. Mm. They can never tell them anything. And that is a remarkably tricky or a new consciousness for most people, to sit there thinking, well, what's the question I'm gonna ask? And that turns out to be a very, 
sometimes a surprisingly difficult skill to develop. And on the other hand, people see that it's a very, very powerful tool. And so, as I said, we have a, we train people to be coaches. In the realm of communication, we also go over some of the basics. Um, <clears throat> I mean, a simple, straightforward criticism exercise. How do you deal with another person when you want them to change their behavior as regards you? You're not thinking about them getting over a problem as we are in the coaching exercise, but simply getting identifying something that they're doing that you dislike and that may be impacting you personally. And we go through some of the steps of being able to do that. And those steps begin with allowing the other person not to be defensive by letting people know and there are ways that you do that. Two typical techniques are one, to pinpoint what it is that you're concerned about and describe it in terms of its impact on you. In other words, rather than saying to somebody, you're obnoxious, saying to somebody, well, when you say things, uh, I often feel put down. And putting it in terms of how you're experiencing it, rather than what the other person is doing wrong, is a much better way of opening that door for them to reconsider how they're dealing with you. A, a, a related concept for di diminishing defensiveness is to praise the other person. That's so obvious, everybody must know it, but we try and practice it with people. So, for example, and, and this gets a little bit back to the resource identification, when you're helping a person to change, you wanna begin by acknowledging uh, what they've done positively already, and what in their efforts possibly even to criticize you, you might say, I really appreciate, John, that you are concerned about me. I know you're a caring person. I, I like it that you want me to be a better person. And so begin that interaction in such a way as that the person will feel more relaxed and that they're going to be better able to take in what it is that you want to help them with we're in a way stripping away the curtain of what it is that we ourselves do by trying to surface for the person some interactive and communication skills that, you know, hopefully we've learned over the years because we do this kind of work. I know when you work with kids, I know you know, and you would hope that most people that work with kids, teachers and counselors, realize that they're the ones who are supposed to be doing the talking. Um, sitting there and lecturing people um, isn't how people change. You don't get them to correct their behavior by giving a lecture. I, by the way, I remember Dave Toma came to my kid's high school in Morristown. They paid him $5,000. He spoke for three and a half hours. And he never once asked anybody in the audience a question, <laughs> the audience being parents and kids. Wow. Not one question. You know, and afterwards, um, I, I went to the school board meeting and I, you know, well, like, asked some questions. And I said, do you feel that that was a successful effort to help and communicate with people? The first is question of the night. We, is that how we teach? Is that how you deal with teachers 
Is that how you talk to children? And it was so self-evidently not the way that you uh, communicate with people. I was trying to surface in a way, well, I was trying to say, man, you wasted $5,000. Their answer was, well, somebody donated the $5,000. But at the same time, I was trying to surface communication patterns within the school. So there's certain skills that people often lack, and there are certain skills that, in general, people could improve. Uh, In the realm of communication, giving and receiving feedback is what I'm talking about when you're being critical of people, but being open to receiving criticism and um, requests that you change your behavior. And helping behavior, you know, being able to be helpful to people who've asked you for help or who you feel may have a problem and that you want to be helpful for two fundamental areas, uh, uh, two skills areas that, that most people could use some work on. In general, I have a view of addiction. I mean, addiction, as we talk about it, uh, as we define it, and as we've done in the earlier sessions, is a way of uh, dealing with problems. It's an unsuccessful way of dealing with problems. It's a way of when you feel tense or depressed or at sea, or when you feel that you're not in control of situation that you strike out or you act out in a way that has a negative impact on where you're going. So for example, if you're worried about a relationship and you get in a fight or scream at somebody, Or as we've been talking about, if your child's doing something misbehaving or doing something that needs correction, um, there's a lot, if you do it out of tension and anxiety, you're only going to exacerbate the problem. And addiction feeds into that so frequently. I mean, addictions in general are a way of trying to cope with the problem in a fashion that reassures you temporarily, but actually produces a worse outset outcome. And so we talk about problem solving as beginning with identifying something that's causing you trouble, emotionally or practically, being able to hone in on what it is exactly you're concerned about. And then we emphasize not to panic. The most critical element is to try and remain calm because virtually all addictive and emotional responses, what people call loss of control, is the fact that people are not doing well at focusing and fine-tuning their response to something. And so if they've spent some time and had some ability to identify what the problem is, if they've remained calm in doing that and begun to think of ways that might actually impact that problem in a positive fashion, If they then tentatively, tentatively not in a way of being unsure, but tentatively in the sense of trying something out, but being awake to real world feedback or feedback from another person to see if that's succeeding, that's a process whereby people learn to cope with upsets or emotional problems or practical problems at work with a pattern that is more calming and successful than the ones that lead them down to an addictive trail, like going out and obviously getting drunk or taking drugs in an unhealthy way or eating or shopping or 
getting lost in a negative relationship, which are negative problem-solving techniques. You know, I'm pretty good at even sought after for using communication to solve problems. But I'm the kind of guy who, when there's any kind of problem, I like to kick the tires, look under the hood, and explore on my own. So I haven't historically been the kind of guy who's good at giving advice about how to talk to another person in a collaborative way. I have, however, learned one fairly concrete trick. I tell people that if you want to solve a problem with another human being, whether it's a student or your child or it's a client, you know you're on the right track when the person you're talking to responds, yeah, you're right, or yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, That's not the same as somebody responding, okay, fine, or I guess, or I'll do better next time. Those responses are a way of communicating that this conversation is uncomfortable and I'll say whatever's needed to make it stop, even if that means agreeing with you. But if you get somebody to say, yeah, exactly, that's right, then it means you're talking to them in a way that makes sense from that person's perspective and now they feel like they're a valued participant in the conversation. It's a conversation that can finally start. It's just a little well, bit and one thing you also saying. want to do is to give them space I mean, when you're talking, you want them to identify the problem and you're helping them do that. And you want them to remain calm. So you remain calm. You know, I always say, don't panic. If you think what's bad has happened so far, believe me, it could get far worse. I've seen a lot worse than this. And then you give them space to generate their own alternative strategies. I remember I actually was, Mm -hmm. um, I'm writing my memoir and I actually was at a mini conference uh, with Alan Marlett and, um, he described that somebody who came and said, Oh my God, I'm going to go see my wife of my ex wife's mother. And she smokes the same cigarettes that I used to smoke and I've quit. And I know she's going to offer me one. I know I'm going to be really anxious and I don't know how I'm going to respond to that. And so either Alan was thinking, damn, that's a really hard problem. I don't know what the answer is or he was using some clever therapeutic technique, so he said nothing. And the guy said, well, I guess there's certain things I can do. I guess I could ask her, I could begin by saying, oh, you know, Marie, I've quit smoking. Would you mind terribly if you don't smoke while I'm here or put your cigarettes away? Or maybe uh, I could try this technique you know, I should really calm down. Maybe I'll exercise before I go to see my ex-mother-in-law. And so you're generating, you're teaching a person to do problem solving by allowing them to generate logical responses to a situation that makes sense. Again, all of these things, hopefully all of us, the coaches in particular, have some skills at working with people. All people can use those skills some skills of problem solving, hard earned from their, our own problems, but also because we've been exposed to literally hundreds of people at some point, just knowing what sort of works well and uh, conveying these through some kinds of templates, ways of solving problems, as well as ways of helping people, as well as ways of communicating and giving feedback to people. 